in a world where podcasts have become mundane, one soul brother with two left feet is doing his best to give you interviews straight, no chaser. Welcome to Reviews and Dud, where you can find interviews with some of your favorite entertainers. going on people it's another interview with reviews and done my guest today hails from my home area of the DMV so I'm very excited to talk to this brother this brother has shared the screen with Nicole Ari Parker Sandra Bullock Willem Dafoe he's worked with uh, David Oyelo he's a, a writer he's just done so much so I'm very happy very excited to welcome mr. Royale Watkins to the interview. Give it up for everybody. And how you doing? Yeah, today, sir? the sound effects, round of applause, add the sound effects in there, effect, effect. <laughs> so how you doing today, brother? Man, I can't complain at all, bro. Glad to be connected. And no doubt, no doubt. So you were born in Chocolate City, a.k.a. Washington, D.C. I um Born in Alaska myself, military brat, but I grew up in, you know, the DMV, grew up in northern VA. So did you also grow up in the DMV? I actually grew I'm literally from the heart of the city, grew up in northeast Washington, D.C. Cool, cool. So what high school did you go to? I What high school? Yeah. I went to McKinley High School. And what was your um, Mambo Wing spot, if you can give us a little secret? You know, that's yeah, uh, here's the thing. Damn, what was the name of the damn? So it was a little spot up the corner. We used to call it the corner carryout. I forgot the name of it, but, man, the uh, it was a spot on the corner of Lincoln and R, uh, and I forgot the name of it, but that was the spot to get the wings, fries, and mumble sauce. Cool. If I was going to talk to somebody from the, um, from the DMV, especially when I talked to – a vet who was, like, out here when it was really popping. Because, you know, when I moved out this area, I was only 13. No, I was 12. Yeah, I was 12 going on 13, so I really couldn't do anything. So, like, a lot of times, man, I'll be out in the city, at, you know, at the VA because I'm a vet or just out in D.C., you know, sightseeing whatever when we could, and I'll run into a, um, you know, an old head, and I'll always, you know, I'll start talking to them. And then they'll always tell me how lit the rich used to be back in the day before I could actually go to the Ritz. Now, mind you, you know, when I started going to the Ritz, we had, we had to stand in that long-ass line. You know, Bama's was in T-shirts and jeans. So from what I heard back in the day, man, the Ritz used to be the spot. Can you uh, validate man, that listen, claim? Man, listen, there is like, all right, so I spent time in New York City, and New York City is like notorious for a bunch of different clubs, like the Cabana. Um, the Cotton Club, uh, Studio 54. But in terms of, like, the culture, like, there was this club called the Tunnel. And the Tunnel on Sunday nights was just ridiculous because it could hold, like, I think upwards of, like, a 1,000 people. I think it char- they charged, like, $20 to get in. But then, like, you know, you had cats that would roll up and pay 100 or $1,000 to bring their crews in. So that was in New York City. In D.C. growing up, there was, like, the Ibex. There was uh, Chapter 3, there was Eastside, um, but the Ritz was the nightclub that, for the most part, people like, when you said the name, the Ritz, you knew what it represented, right? You knew they drew an audience, and you knew it was popping. So, yeah, like, there's a bunch of different clubs. I think later, after I lost, left the city, like, clubs like Love and all of these more ritzy, upscale clubs, like uh, Mark Barnes' experiences, came on the scene but back in the day like the the 80s and 90s man it was all about chapter three uh ibex uh, uh, uh the ritz um uh, a couple of other clubs but the ritz was in the forefront for sure the sweat boxes bro where you could go and people actually dance oh yeah yeah well even with the um the ice box man like you know surprisingly like you know i'm not a big huge go-go fan 
Now, I, I will say this, though, you know, people Don't from, say that. Don't say that. In the, don't go to the city and say that out loud, though. No, no, no. But I'm going to say it like this. With GoGo, it's something that you have to actually experience live and hear live to get the full effect of it. It's like, you know, like when I was in the Air Force, you know, living in the U.K., like I didn't really play Go-Go, you know, in my dorm room or when I was a DJ. I didn't play it because it's not the same effect as, you know, seeing it live and experiencing it live. Now, I like it, but I got to hear it live. No, it's a completely, look, it's a completely different experience. It's like, again, I lived in New York City, and, and again, thank you for your service, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a military vet as well. So when you travel overseas and you take go-go music with you, they're not going to have an appreciation for Rare Essence or, or right, the Junkyard Band or Pump Blenders or, right, any of these, uh, 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 what's his name, um, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, right? It's, even if they kind of understand the music, it will never even come close to being in a venue live with a go-go band and the energy and what that experience looks like and feels like when you're in the moment. Totally agree. It's the same with, um, it's the same for me with John Legend's music and with like the roots, like it's not a knock on them, but I've actually seen the roots live. So like I tell people to check. I've well, seen the roots live as well. It's a different experience. It's a different yeah, experience. You got to see them live. When people listen, it's when people say you had to be there. It's literally you had to be there. Yeah, no doubt. All right, so let's get into this uh, comedy. So you know, I'm a fan and everything. But when did you realize, brother, that you wanted to pursue stand-up comedy? And who were some of your early influences? Um, I would say as young as the second grade, um, I had a teacher, Miss Blackburn who allowed me and a classmate of mine, Richard Guy, we were both the class clowns, she told us if we just uh, acted right, she would let us be the clowns in this thing called the circus parade. And the circus parade was our class went through the school as different circus animals and people in the circus as a traveling circus, and me and Richard Guy got to be the clowns. And just seeing the level of excitement, that other students had with me and my classmate acting like complete asses being literal clowns, right, um, informed me that there was some value to, um, to entertainment, right? And then as I started to, to grow, um, I'm number eight in a family of 14 children, so I have 13 siblings, right? I realized that making people laugh was a way of getting attention without doing something negative, and so my brother Rambo, who's a year older than I am, he was a, a, a clown as well, but he always did these wild things that got negative attention, which would get him in trouble. So my thing was like, nah, I think I can flip this and do something entertaining. And it started with me dancing and so forth, but then it kind of evolved back into the space where it was more about how can I make people laugh. So fast forward to high school and my college years, I started to pay attention to folks like Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby because I was like, oh, that's how you turn what I'm doing into a career. And as I evolved, um, I was in college. I was in the Marine Corps Reserve, got pulled out my third year to go over to Iraq for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And the thing that Desert Shield, Desert Storm helped me understand is, right, we only get one shot at life. And what we really want to get out of life is a pursuit of the things that make us happy and our purpose, attached to our purpose and passion. And so the more we can define our purpose, right, we become more purpose-driven. And so for me, I said, if I make it out of this thing alive, I want to be focused on the thing that brings me happiness, right, attached to my purpose and passion, which was the stand-up. And, and so I made it back in one piece, moved from D.C. to New York, um, started focusing. The people that inspired me was people that I was paying attention to, which was Damon Wayans, Mark Curry, um, local comics, Tony Woods, Chris Paul, Dave Chappelle, um, Danny Williams, Andy Evans. Uh, but, you know, again, nationally, cats like Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby were the people that helped shape what I was trying to learn to do. Cool, cool. 
So shout out to you, man, for shouting out some of the people who folks kind of um, downplay from a standpoint, like Damon Wayans and Mark Curry. You know, I guess they think because they were on TV and sitcom stars that they didn't know how strong their stand-up game was. So thank you for shouting them out, and thank you for your service. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's 92. You make an appearance on Showtime at the Apollo. So, you know, we all know how legendary Apollo is. Were you nervous at all about, you know, taking the stage at a legendary venue such as the Apollo? You know, it's interesting because I think I did the Apollo after I did Deaf Comedy. And because I had the success that I had on doing Deaf Comedy, right, I kind of felt like my opening bit was so strong that it would do what it needed to do in terms of ingratiating me to that audience to allow me to do the rest of my set. So um, was I nervous? Absolutely. You know, uh, big joke or not, you still have a little bit of nerves because, to your point, that is an audience that's known for um, challenging comics and entertainers, singers and otherwise, right, to realize the best version of themselves. And so if you don't step up there with the goods, they'll let you know very quickly, and it's going to be a long ride home on the train, the bus, or a car, however you got there. Um, but fortunately for me, I was able to to carve out a, a strong enough set that the audience had an appreciation. But I think they also had an awareness of who I was uh, because, again, like I said, I think that my deaf comedy had aired before I did the Apollo. No, so – one thing I've always been curious about, you know, I'm going to sidetrack really quick just because I'm curious naturally, is with comedy, you know, the older that I've gotten, I try not to really trash comics anymore because I'll say, like, you know, comedy subjective, and one person may find funny, somebody else might not. So I've always been curious from a stand-up point, on average, how long would you say it takes, you know, a comic to lose their audience if the jokes aren't landing from the moment she hit that stage? Um, I would say anywhere from 60 seconds to two minutes. Wow. That quick? I think it was that. Um... Yeah. I mean, listen, you, you have a very short window. I mean, some or it just is, listen, some audience are way more patient and forgiving. So, right, you can be on stage for as much as three or four minutes, right, if you, if you just know how to manage your way around the stage, right? But a lot of audiences, like, I started hosting in D.C., but then as, uh, after I did Deaf Comedy, um, I'd established a relationship with the producer, Bob Sumner, um, and he had a room in Jersey in East Orange, New Jersey, which was really aggressive, uh, called The Peppermint. And... Bill Bellamy had transitioned out of Jersey. He was the regular host of that room, and I was in position to become the new host. That audience, man, it was a room of about three or 400 people that showed up every Thursday night, and they just did not have the patience to tolerate anybody that didn't bring it immediately. And there was nights where they would give me a hard time. Even as the host, they would be like, yo, man, let's go. Bring the comedy. We want to hear it. And you had to establish yourself. And if the jokes weren't quite working, you had to find a way to, to, to snap or bag or to, you know, to roast people in the audience to get them off of you. But either way, what it did was, especially for me personally, is like forced me to learn how to prepare better so that when I stepped into a stage with people who had paid money and who had gotten clothes out of the cleaners or paid to have their children watch, right, you you respected the fact that those people were giving you an invaluable piece of their time and attention. Thanks for that, man. You answered my uh, question. The reason why I asked that was because, you know, I, I also, I'm a reviewer also, and I had to review a uh, comedy special recently. Now, I'm not going to say the person's name because the review's coming out soon, but um, I'm sitting there watching it. You know, I'm trying to give this, gentleman's benefit of the doubt, and I didn't laugh, like, one time during the entire 45-minute set. I mean, I might have chuckled or, you know, I cracked a, like, a little smile, but, yeah, like, Yo, this cat this cat just isn't funny. Like, it's not landing, and that's why, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier, like, you know, 
what some people find funny, like, you know, I don't really find funny. And, I mean, the order that I've gotten, I just say, it wasn't for me, you know, but you might like it, so, you know, check it out. But it's like, you know, prime example is I'm not really a Jerry Seinfeld fan. Now, do I think he's a trash comic? No, he's just not my cup of tea. And dude is obviously a legend because it's Jerry Seinfeld. He's just, his comedy doesn't really resonate with me, but it doesn't make him a trash, um, you know, a trash comic. You know, it's Jerry Seinfeld of all, of all people. Listen, right, so, you can go into one of the finest steak houses in New York City, right? And you may not enjoy steak. It may not, you may be a pescatarian. You may be a vegan. Right? It doesn't yeah. take away from the value of that steak. It just means that my taste currently don't, won't allow me to have an appreciation for the way you have graded this particular piece of food item. No doubt. All right, so you're making noise, you know, you're doing your thing, and the first time I can recall seeing you on TV was mid-'90s on a little show called Singled Out on MTV, which for yeah. you know, young kids yeah. out there, the joint had Carmen Electra, it had Jenny McCarthy and Chris Harwick. It was basically like a dating show. They revamped it recently, and, um, you know, you can find it now. I think Kiki Palmer's the host, but it's not touching with, with Mr. Watkins, Jenny McCarthy, and, you know, Carmen Electra doing it in the 90s. So how did you end up with that show, brother? That was interesting, man. I just got um, an opportunity to go out and read for it. I can't even remember who the cast directing was, but it was one of those opportunities that I think happened because I did Def Jam and I was a young, you know, they're looking for young, aspiring comics, and they want to add some diversity to the show. And I went in and read, and and the producers sparked to me. Uh, Mark Cronin, and I can't remember his partner's name, a female producer, but they they brought me in and I read for them and read for the show and it's like we really like this guy and and then went and and met um Chris and Jenny McCarthy and the chemistry was right and and they hired me cool yeah you was you was that guy I was thinking out man because you just have the the gift of the gift of gab and you know you weren't out there being all extra just you know the gift of gab and he brought it you know a, a flyness and an extra swag to the show that was kind of, you know, missing. Cause well, the I guess show, Jenny- yeah, I mean, the show was really white, you know, before I showed <laughs> up, and they just allowed me to come in and add some, you know, a little bit of swag to your point to the show, and we just mixed it up and had fun. Um, you know, I, I look back on it very fondly because, again, it's one of those things. I looked up one day, and SNL was doing a spoof of, of me on, uh, on Singled Out. And it's like, man, you really make an impression on the culture to the extent that, right, these people are actually spoofing you on the biggest uh, stage in terms of sketch comedy, right? And so that was meaningful, but it was also fun, and I really enjoyed working with Chris and, and with Jenny McCarthy. All right, so I'm going to take you back again. You know, we're going to go back to 97 now. We're going to talk about Speed 2. Now, I'm going to say this. Speed 2 is a terrible movie. I'm sorry, son. I'm sorry, Jason. <laughs> Speed 2 is a terrible, it's a terrible sequel. However, Mr. Watkins, you made Speed 2 enjoyable. And for, like, the longest time, one of my best friends and I, we kept quoting your line. Like, at any given moment, we would use your, your first line you see in the movie. You know what it is? I do know. I remember it was on the steps of the ship, and it was me welcoming people to take their picture, and I had to greet uh, um, uh, Jason and and Sandra. Something, and have a good time. It was some line like that, but I don't remember the exact words. The line was was something for a future credit. It was something for a future cruise credit. (laughs) It was the way you said it, so, like, you said it so nonchalantly, and it's like we quoted that for such a longest time. So, you know, you made Speed 2 enjoyable for us, but, you know, it's still a terrible, you know, sequel. So I mean, you know, here's the thing. Let me tell you what was interesting about that movie. Um, the thing that was interesting about that movie is that um, I had lost my second to the youngest brother, right, I think like a year before some – can't remember the exact timeline, but I lost but my second to the youngest brother was killed in D.C. And that movie, because it was filmed on location, 
allowed me to kind of disconnect from like this place of pain and to be away focused on work. And so I think I was on that movie for two or three months or something. The Seaborn Legend was a five-star ship that we lived on that ship while we were in production. Um, I had this great room. Uh, I had, you know, people servicing me. The food was five-star. I got up in the mornings and probably two or three days out of the week, uh, me and Jason um, ran together on the treadmill. Like, it got crazy. We were doing, like, freaking five, six, seven miles on the treadmill in the morning. And, you know, I just had this great experience seeing the world, like, out in the ocean on this boat and staying on these different islands um, and, and, again, disconnecting from a piece of pain that I had to go through at the time that was really, really turned out to be valuable for me, even even though the movie was pretty awful. Um, you know, there were some great moments that I got to experience working with Tamia, who was awesome. Um, yep. One of my dear friends, Joe D'Angerio, uh, is, is, has become a lifelong friend through my connection to him. Um, we were somewhere, one of those islands, it wasn't St. I think it was, oh, St. Bart's. St. Bart's, um, nude beach, out in the water, sun setting, and probably one of the most peaceful times of my life was that moment out just looking at the sunset in on this French nude beach, you know, experience. And that wouldn't have happened without, you know, this crappy <laughs> crappy part two of a movie. Um, but I was hopeful that it became like a big deal. You know what I mean? I really had my fingers crossed that that movie turned me into an action star I, listen, I almost drowned on that movie. Um, the swim scenes that you see with me and Jason was me actually swimming through these little-ass pipes, and we went down um, with oxygen to take me through the course. And then Jason was in front of me swimming like he was acting and taking way too long for us to get to the hatch. And I was like, oh, my God, I had to go up through the escape hatch um, when we were filming one of the scenes, and it it was a little nerve-wracking, but, you know, I just had to remind me, hey, bro, I'm behind you swimming. So swim. <laughs> that was, that was, it was great. It was great. I'm glad we had, I'm glad we had fun with the, um, with the shooting of the film and everything. It's, just, it's one of those things where you can kind of tell that it was a paycheck movie for Sandra, and I guess – Jason was there to finance something else, you know, which is yeah. fine. But, yeah, I mean, you were the high point of speed, too. So, shout out to you for doing I speed, too. So, <laughs> so, after speed, too, you know, it's 97, going into the 10th grade. It's summertime. I started seeing promos for your autobiographical sitcom, Built to Last, which unfortunately didn't last too long. I think it came on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock. And it was on NBC, yeah. you know, of yeah. course. Now, looking back, do you think NBC kind of under underpromoted the show? Well, they definitely underpromoted the show, but we had the challenge of going up against the World Series for, like, the first two or three episodes. And, you know, um, I remember the ratings, we were getting, like, a 3.8 at the time, right? We had 3.8 million households. And if you got a 3.8 right now, today, you would be, they would be throwing bags of money at you, right? Um, but back then, those were real challenging numbers. And the network and the studios had, you know, obviously rolled the dice and, and grabbed me as a young piece of talent and built the series around me. Um, and there was, I mean, there was so much energy and hope uh, around uh, the show and what we were doing. Um, but, again, it was just a challenging time to try to launch a new series without the kind of broad support you need in order to get, like, there was no social media back then. Right? You didn't have Instagram, Twitter, or any of those platforms. It was all, you know, the uh, TV guide and commercials and newspaper articles. And, you know, that's a, it's a hell of a way to have to promote a brand-new series if you don't have the kind of muscle behind you that you need in order to get – like global kind of attention, um, it, you know what I mean, that, that really helps create the awareness um, to drive numbers to a specific program, right? It's, it's really a crapshoot uh, the way they used to launch those shows. Yeah, man, it was a um, 
such a good show, though. I mean, you had uh, Paul Winfield on the joint. You had uh, a young, very young, pre-Bernie Mac, Jeremy Suarez was on the show. Pre-Bernie Mac, show. Jeremy Suarez. Yeah, well, he was like, what, maybe three or four years old. Man, uh, he's a baby, bro. Yeah, Jeffrey Owens was on the joint. And it was, you know, looking back, it was a positive show because, you know, 97, man, was the same year. You had your show on NBC, and you had another black sitcom that they totally downplayed on CBS, which was probably one of the most underrated shows of the 90s, in my opinion, was the Gregory Hines show on CBS. Yeah. Yep. And both your shows were positive. You know, you had strong, positive black male role models. You had the positive mom. You had your brothers on the show doing their thing. You were on the show. So, yeah, NBC totally dropped the ball on your show. So NBC is on the list for dropping the ball. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, listen, on man, look, uh, the day. I'm grateful that – but uh, here's the thing. I'm grateful that NBC even considered giving me a shot. And in hindsight, there's so many things that I would have done differently. But the reality is that, you know, it's just one of those things that, right, you can only deliver the best version of yourself and the best piece of, uh, you know, uh, quality entertainment that you can. The rest of it is, is up to the universe and a little bit of luck, God, and magic. And, you know, all of those things helped me get as far as I got at the time, man. We made eight episodes, and so many people, so many comics never even get the opportunity to get that far. Truth, truth. So it's um, 2000, and like the, old adage, like the old adage says, comics sometimes make the best dramatic actors. And one of your roles that I feel that truly showed your dramatic range and kind of made me, like, you know, give you the second eye, like, yo, this brother is, had some serious skills, was the role of AK in the highly underrated Dancing in September, which I saw on HBO back in summer of 2000. I just graduated high school. So you did your thing in Dancing in September. You know, you played a, you know, gangbanger, but you, like, were quite menacing in the joint. So... Did you ever consider venturing away from comedy and branching out to do more dramatic work? Well, here's the thing. All of it's storytelling. And as an artist, one of the things that I'm completely clear about is that, right, I'm more focused on the story than the genre. So, right, you hired me to, to play, and literally when I say play, I mean you are hiring me to play pretend. It doesn't make a difference to me if I'm – playing pretend as Dante and I'm aboard a ship as a photographer and going through the experience that I go through as a photographer, or if I'm, you know, the boyfriend to Melinda Williams in, in this um, Dancing in September um, film and, and, and have to put in the work that I have to put in to tell that story, which we both know took a tragic turn. And, um, you know, the great thing is that, the work that I did in Death of September had people, two, two films, the second of which I'll probably let you get to, but there were two films that the work that I did on screen led to people questioning me and my character off screen. And so all of that led me to believe that I'm doing great work, whether it's in the comedy space or the dramatic space. People are believing, right, my version of that story um, and my ability to create a truth based on the words on the page that a producer, director, writer hands me. So to me, it doesn't make a difference to me whether it's comedy or drama, right? It's just you hired me to help tell a version of the story based on my interpretation of, you know, the words on the page and the direction that you give me. All right, well, since you want to bring up, you know, your filmography, brother, yeah, it could be one or two joints you're talking about, but the other one is obvious. The next, the the one, the second one is obvious. Well, I mean, it's it's it, it's a few, but I, the one I think you're talking about is probably your Goodwill Roll, Goodwill Roy, and I will follow the joint you did with Ava, a pre-fame Ava Duvernay. So it was that one, or was it when he played MC Hammer's brother in Too Legit? So it was neither one of those. That's kind of funny. It was neither one of those, but I had a great time 
playing uh, in both of those films as well. He saw me then. I, which, which one was it? Well, Deliverance from Eva. It was my role in Deliverance from Eva, where I was, you know, playing a male hairdresser uh, so convincingly well that people thought I was gay. Yeah, but you know, after the credits, like the, you know, the little the little reveal. Here's came the thing. Out. Here's the thing. Most of the audience did not stick around for the credits, and that piece that was put after the credits was supposed to be in the film. The reveal was supposed to be in the film before the credits, and uh, Gary Hardwick, the director, had to fight the studio so that he could even put it after the credits. So most of the audience left thinking, that guy does such a job convincingly well playing a gay hairdresser that he must be gay. Wow. That's crazy, man. And see, and now, now that you bring that up, you know, because I didn't, I didn't know that was in the credits I, until the DVD hit, and I think I had a young lady over in the dorm room calling on myself now. You know, it was my single days, though, but, you know, I had, yep. I had a young lady yep. over, and I fell asleep, and, you know, when the credits finished wrong, she woke me up and was like, oh, yeah, I'm like, it's an extra scene. I'm like, wait a minute, like, the entire time, Kelly wasn't gay. You know, but exactly. it brings the light, you know, kind of like in, Another issue because I think that um, even nowadays, like you know, it's not a black white thing. But I think even nowadays, like a lot of people think that male hairdresser, male hairdressers, you know, prefer the alternative lifestyle, which is fine. But it's like you know, you rarely think that a male hairdresser is going to be straight. Yeah, but I go back to I remember when I was a, a very young man and the movie Shampoo came out. And I can't remember the, the actor's name who was the lead in Shampoo, Warren. whose name escapes me. Who was yeah, it? Warren Betty. Warren, yeah, Warren Betty. But Warren Betty was a male hairdresser, and his whole thing was like, man, he was sleeping with all of the chicks whose hair he was doing. Yeah. So that always informed me at a very early age uh, in terms of male hairdressers. Um, you know, but for me – it just was a fun, interesting role to play, especially because I had been so inspired by the work that Eddie Murphy did in Beverly Hills Cop. No, no, um, I'm sorry. Damon Wayans had given uh, Dame, uh, Eddie had given Damon Wayans an opportunity to play the valet uh, in Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, and so that was always, that You Take Them Nanas was always top of mind for me and how much fun you could bring to a role if you just had an open mind and was willing to play. Definitely. And I can definitely uh, commend that. You gave me something to um, think about. So before I get into your writing that you've done for sitcoms, you know, i got to ask about Miss Ava DuVernay. You worked with her, you know, pre-fame and I Will Follow, which we briefly hinted at. Now, so it's 2010, and, you know, Ava's not – you know, Ava that we know now. So working on that set, did you have any idea that she would become the force that she is today? Um, you know what? It's it's hard to say because like Ava started off as a um as a marketing person. She was doing PR for film. And I had had an awareness and a relationship in passing with her when she was doing marketing PR. And I could just see that you know, her drive and her passion for filmmaking um, was bigger than what she was doing at the time. And then when she made this, the shift and started directing, right, it was just one of those things where we, the community out here, uh, especially on the urban side, the black side is so small that you literally connected to everybody. Um, and she some kind of way had reached out to me and, and I, can't remember who the casting director was, but some kind of way, you know, I got the opportunity to wait, I'm sorry, I will follow actually was was a reach out because Ava just had somebody call me and say, Yo, will you come in and knock this role out for me? Now that I recall it. Yes. This wasn't even an audition situation. This was Ava reaching out saying, Yo, can you come and knock this film out for me? And by the way, um, do you have somebody else? And and that's with me and Owen Smith, the other comic that's in it with me. 
and Owen and I was working on something together, and I just reached out to him. and was like, yeah, Yo, you want to go knock out this role? So it's one of those chance things where somebody just calls you up and says, hey, you want to come jump in this film? But uh, I was aware of her passion for filmmaking before that, and we had a trust relationship because we knew each other. And then after I did the film, um, you know, I realized that, oh, okay, Ava's a filmmaker. She, that's, all of that passion that she was doing marketing film was really about her desire to be a filmmaker. So, yes, I had some awareness, but didn't had no idea that it would turn into what it's turned into now, which is her being one of, you know, uh, one of the most recognizable black filmmakers, not even female, but, but black filmmakers or filmmakers, period. She, she has strong work ethics, and, and she's an incredible storyteller. So um, did I know? No, but I did sense that there was something special there. All right, so it's 2006, 2007, and folks, Mr. Watkins dabbles in um, writing. He was a staff writer on the UPM sitcom All of Us, and I want to briefly talk about what I think is one of the strongest episodes on that show, and that's the N-word episode. That's where um, Bobby, you know, four or five lets the N-word slip out, and, of course, you know, his parents have to talk to him about it. So how did the plot of that episode come to fruition? Did they, you know, tell you what they were looking for? Was that your idea? No, I, I brought that story to them. I brought that story to them. Dwayne Martin and I at the time was having a bunch of conversations, and he knew that my real life, my oldest son, Joey, is not my biological son. Um, when I started dating my wife, April, my oldest son, Joey, was eight at the time. So because we had a blended family dynamic, Dwayne had recognized that what I was doing on stage uh, was so close to my real life that I could possibly bring some value story-wise to their show because, you know, it was the same type of dynamic. So he had kind of been positioning me to get a writer's job on the show for a while. And when they finally brought me in to take a meeting, um, I'd had experience where my middle son, Royce, had come to me out of the blue and asked me, could he say the N-word that rhymes with bigger? And when I took that story into my meeting, um, it had gotten back to Will, and Will got really excited about it, and they hired me immediately, and we started developing that episode. And when we started developing, again, Will got so excited that he said, I want to be more involved, and I want to direct this episode. So just luck luck of nature that, you know, it was the right place at the right time with the right set of circumstances that gave me the opportunity for my first writing um, piece of work for television to be the same thing that is Will Smith's first piece of directing work. And I cannot take all of the credit for that episode outside of me taking the story into the room, Um, but a lot of it was um, driven by the support of Will Smith and the other writers um, who uh, weighed in very strongly with you – know, it became one of the those things that um, that a lot of people had an opinion about. Jeff Strauss was the showrunner at the time and was very supportive because, again, you know, it got very emotional personally for me to bring this very weighty thing into the room, but uh, I was supported by all of the other writers in the room who wanted to help support this episode, right? And so I didn't have to kind of sit there alone – uh, because I was so green as a writer, I needed that additional support. Well, that's a great story, man. And it kind of, um, I kind of went through the same thing um, with my son. Now, you know, my son's 11, so, you know, my son's biracial. So I try to, like, not say <laughs> it around him as much. You know, and I try to take it. I'm working on taking it out of my vocabulary, even as, you know, using it from a slang standpoint. Because, you know, like, I'm like, nah, you can't say it, man. So when you say it, I'm like, right. well, I'm an adult. So I can do what I want. But, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get that in my vocabulary. As a matter of fact, I might um show him that episode to use it as a teaching tool just because, you know, it's a good thing. He just gave me an idea. So that, that might get added to the list. So speaking well, of your writing. I, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it really is a powerful episode because people were using it as a teaching tool in schools, and so I'm very proud of the work that we did on that. 
So sticking with the writing, you also have the you're one of the lead writers on the series adaptation of the film Are We There Yet? which starred Terry Crews and Essence Atkins. Now with a film media being in-depth television, was it hard to come up with, you know, different ideas every week to keep the show fresh? Well, it's interesting. I, I was actually a staff writer on that show. Uh, the gentleman who was the, the head writer and executive producer showrunner was Ali Leroy, who co-created Everybody Hates Chris. And it was kind of a unique opportunity working on Are We There Yet? because they had what's called a 90-10 order in the business, which is they made 10 episodes of the show. They tested the 10 episodes. And based on the success of those 10 episodes, um, you know, they decided that they wanted to make the additional 90 episodes, but those 90 episodes had to be made in a year uh, or so. And so we found a space in Stanford, Connecticut, uh, a studio out there. Uh, myself and the other writers lived in Connecticut for almost a year, and we just cranked out episodes like damn near three a week. Like the, the, that's, a, you know, uh, an accelerated pace for making television um, and – there's not a whole lot of time for doing anything other than coming up with ideas for episodes. But when you operate in a, a silo kind of in that way, production-wise, you know, you meet in a writer's room, you pitch episodes, you're dealing with one person who's running the show. That person goes, I like the idea. Let's talk about it. Now go write the episode, turn it into me, and we're going to shoot it three or four days later. That's how TV works. Wow. Like, no idea. Well, I mean, that, you know, um, that's how TV works when you have to deliver 90 episodes that quickly. That's not the standard, but, you know, that is a version. That's crazy. Shout out to you, man. Kudos to you for knocking that, knocking that out. So, New Century, you're doing big things, and you start a little thing with Anthony Anderson called the Mixtape Comedy Show, which I still think is a great concept, and I even now – you know, I'll be in my part-time job, and, you know, I'll, I'll pull up some of the videos that you guys posted. What was the whole concept that you were looking for, and how did that come to fruition, starting that? The, the Mixtape Comedy Show was born out of my desire to <laughs> create enough money to pay my bills. Uh, it was slow for me in 2009 when we started it. And I um, was literally broke and trying to find a way to not have to go work a nine-to-five. And I, Anthony, who's a friend, I hit him up and said, listen, I, I want to do something uh, in the comedy space. We'll be grateful if you would uh, consider, you know, co-hosting it with me. And he said, come to the house. He uh, was back here in L.A. at the time. Uh, but he's on Law & Order, which was being filmed in New York City. And so we made the decision that we would produce a comedy show once a month in New York on a Sunday night because it would be easy for him to, to pop, pop over to the show and then get to work Monday morning on time. And, you know, the version of the show that exists now, which is, you know, uh, me hosting, uh, putting up four com comics, a, a live band, a DJ, uh, and a closing music act, is slightly different from where we started, which was Anthony hosting, me co-hosting, uh, putting up comics, um, having a freestyle battle with a DJ, and we didn't have a band. So after doing the show for a year and a half, almost two years to start it, um, unfortunately, Law & Order got canceled, and Anthony moved back to L.A. And the challenge of trying to get him to fly back to New York once a month put us in a space where we both mutually kind of decided, um, more my mutual than his, that it just made sense for us to part ways, and I continued to host the show, and he went on to some little show called Blackish that has done very well for him. <laughs> no doubt. Well, still a dope concept, man. Like I said, the videos give me life when I'm feeling down or, you know, those doldrums are working sometimes. You just need something to, you know, perk you up. So sticking with, you know, this new century, you kind of rebrand yourself again with After I Do on YouTube, which co-stars your wife. Now, watching that show, um, I can definitely just see the 
black love between you two and you just have a natural aura and, you know, like I can tell you guys like a really hard couple that you have like just this, you know, good communication going on. So do you guys script that stuff or, do, you know, is it all improv or is it just you just go with the flow naturally? It's, it's All of it is unscripted. There's no way in the world I could script this woman that I'm married to. Um, I think it's one of those things where we both mutually kind of agreed that it would be nice to explore um, putting a version, or, or I say a version, putting pieces of our 20-plus year marriage journey together um, out into the universe to see how the public would respond to it. And, you know, the response that we got suggested that we should explore trying to add some shape to what we were doing. And so, uh, again, it's just been a work in progress uh, for us to um, build something uh, on social media in the social space that has resonated with uh, our audience on Facebook mostly, which is 100,000-plus. Um, but, you know, again, we've worked to kind of define it a little bit more. So we have the, the blog that we do online. We have the videos that we post on Facebook. We have a podcast that's now on iTunes and other audio platforms, uh, as well as the, the uh, video audio version that lives on YouTube. And it's just been a journey of discovery for us trying to, to learn how to manage um, a healthy marriage and relationship while raising a family and, and extending a piece of what we do to our online audience and then allowing them to, to be a part of the conversation as we try to figure out uh, how to, to realize the best version of ourselves. Oh, man, I give you the utmost respect for putting that out there because you guys, you know, you and your wife have so many good topics. And I think one of my favorite ones, it's, a, it's an older one, but it's when you guys talk about TV in the TV in the bedroom. And, like, watching that made me realize some things in my own marriage. I'm like, you know, man, it's, it's the bedroom. It's supposed to be our domain. And I spent a lot of time watching TV you know, in the bedroom with my spouse when I could just be, you know, communicating with her, be it talking or reading a book or just being together. Like, you know, naturally, like, you know, it's TV in there now, but we've kind of, you know, gotten away from, you know, when it's time to, you know, go to bed for the night, we turn the TV off and we try to talk or read a book and listen to music and, you know, just like that's that's one, that's one of my favorite. Try to got to connect. It's a space to connect. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, and, and and I find that with me in April, is that right? What I'll, the I think the value that we really have is that we're willing to be transparent, and where most people don't want you to see the uglier pieces of of their marriage, right? We're willing to turn the camera on and say, look, it's not always pretty but we believe in our marriage enough that we're willing to share the parts that aren't always pretty because we know that we'll continue to try to work towards the better version of this thing. Respect, brother. I'm I'm subscribed, man, so I always look forward to watching your um, After I Do videos. So earlier this year, you know, we've been going through the COVID, and right around April there was a little special called Def Jam Healing Through laughter which you have have a directing credit on so how hard was to put all that together with um you know everything going on with the covid um all right so that healing through laughter was presented by russell simmons and deaf comedy uh cedric the entertainer was the host but it was also produced by uh one of my good friends Jeru tillman and Jeru, uh who i have regular conversations with because we both operate in this space as producers and creators right, extend the opportunity to me to come on board to support the production. And uh, it started from me coming aboard as a producer, and then he extended the opportunity for me to direct. And, um, you know, I just got excited about it because it was, a, it was an opportunity for me to learn how to, to, to direct um, in this kind of new medium, um, Traditionally, I've directed comedy specials. I think I have probably about 22 specials under my belt as a producer and director, Um, four of them directing and and the rest producing. Um, But producing in this virtual space, 
uh, especially using Zoom as a platform, is completely different because you're not in the room with the talent, and you actually can't see what's on the screen. So you have to trust some different um, ways. Uh, you have to trust the virtual space and and learn how to direct using digital packets rather than seeing talent on the screen. So, um, like, it, it was, a, again, one of those things that, was a great opportunity for me to work with some cool people and learn to do something different. Um, and, and it, you know, again, I'm excited about it. It was a dope show, man. Like I said, it really helped out a lot of people, I think, who were down in the doldrums, you know, being stuck in the house with the um, COVID and everything. So shout out, shout out to everybody who brought that together. So, you know, before we close out, man, you know, I, I got to ask you some, some hard questions that so you got to put on that, uh, Thinking, Catherine, be quick on your uh, quick on your feet. So you know you grew up in D.C., but you're out you know on the West Coast now. So you still rooting for the um, the Wizards when they're in season, or do you you know you rock with the Lakers now? Um, you know what? I'm a fan of basketball, and I used to be a Bullets fan, uh, and that obviously changed. I enjoy watching the Wizards, but I just don't have the capacity to kind of spend the the time that it takes to really get into basketball, right? I think that um, I started paying more attention to golf um, at my age. Um, <laughs> and if I can get to a basketball game, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go and enjoy it. And that's very rare because the cost of tickets is just crazy these days to be able to sit, you know, I don't have to sit courtside, but at least close enough to be able to enjoy it. Um, but also just so much of my time is, is tied up, you know, either spent creating content with April or spending time with my, my sons and my family or developing projects. So, you know, I enjoy the Wizards, but I'm probably paying way more attention to, to the Lakers. Top three hip-hop MCs of all time. Who, who's, who's your top three? Top three? Top three. Just give me, give me, give me, give me three of your top. Um, wow, top three. Biggie is in my top three. Um, um, I really like Jay Electronica, and I really like, um, I like Jay Cole. Um, and I'm not. I just those are that come to my top of mind right now. Jay Z obviously is very high on my list. Um, I love Cube. Um. I mean, you know, but you said top three, so that's kind of hard. I mean, uh, um, what's his name? Um, damn, uh, Public Enemy. Uh, why is he escaping me? Chuck D is just Chuck like, D? amazing. He may he may not have the body of work, right? But Chuck D is amazing. What his voice represents, it's just amazing, right? Yes, sir. You know, I even enjoy. I hate to admit. I mean, I enjoy Drake. Right, what Drake is doing in terms of body of work, you say what you want about him, but the guy's body of work is crazy. Oh yeah, no, his um, his his his, his work ethic, his, his work ethic, is unmatched. Like you know, Drake's like, you know, K Hart, like, he's like Kevin Hart. Like his work ethic is yeah, absolutely is unmatched. And say what you want. You know, yeah. Why are you busy talking about him? He's in the studio working. Yeah. Seeing Drake live, you know, he does his thing, but it's just like, I guess almost like, you know, so much he puts out that it's hard to keep up with um, keep up with Drake. And, I, I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth in my top three. It's almost to the point to where I listen to older cats by still, like, you know, playing, you know, newer cats. And, like, kind of like with comedy. Like, you know, I'll tell people, like, you know, I don't bump him on the regular, but, you know, he's not trash, so... I guess, like, for me to be, like, for an MC to be in my top three, top five, top ten, whatever, like, you know, I got to play them on the regular. That's why I always tell folks, like, but Eminem, very talented, very, very dope lyricist and all that, but, like, I don't drive around listening to Eminem, like, on the regular. I mean, I might put some from Eminem maybe every two or three months. Like, I bump, you know, Kane's old stuff. I bump Rakim's old stuff. I bump, um... Houdini's whole stuff more than I play yeah. Eminem. And it's not a shot at Eminem, it's just that, again, it's like, I don't play him on the regular, so if I don't play him on the regular, like, you know, he's not going to be in my top MCs of all time. And the last yeah, but, question, 
but but somebody like Andre 2000, I would just love to hear more of. I love Andre. Um, you know, cats like that. Black Thought is ridiculous. You know what I mean? But they're not. It's hard for me to say. Oh, here's my top three. You know, no doubt. And the last tough question: What was the last movie that you saw that you know you didn't have a part in that just had you crying because it was so funny? Crying because it was so funny that I didn't have a part in. Hilarious. Like the last hilarious film you saw. Oh, my goodness. Last hilarious film that I saw. Um, you know what? I mean, I have to, like, all right. So most of the films that I'm watching these days are documentaries. I don't get to watch a lot of comedy. Um, but Kevin Hart's last special, um, you know, I really enjoyed because it it genuinely made me laugh. Um, uh, but in terms of films, I couldn't even tell you. I couldn't even tell you. I haven't even legit watched anything recently that stands out to me as like, oh, my God, this movie was hilarious. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the last choice that I, that I saw. Because, I mean, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, I'm also a critic, so, you know, I see – I see so much, and, like, you know, like, I'll laugh at something, but I guess for me to be able to um, consider, like, you know, a classic or hilarious, like, you know, I got to be able to quote it years later. So that's why when when I talk to people and they kind of try to downplay, you know, Eddie, and I'm like, well, for me, the thing about Eddie Murphy is I grew up in the 80s, so Eddie came out the gate so strong with his stuff and his movies and everything, like, his first damn near 12 movies are all classics, and I can still quote those, you know, 20-plus years later, and not a lot of comics, black, white, or whatever, can say that, that their first, like, run of movies can still be quoted years later. I mean, I can turn on Coming to America or Boomerang right now, edit it, and still laugh as hard as I did from when I was a kid. So, but again, you know, comedy. Man, listen, bro. Listen, life, life, uh, Harlem Nights, uh, uh, Trading Places, 48 Hours, the the clumps. Eddie's body of work is so ridiculous that, yeah, if we want to go back that far, that's a different story, right? One of my, listen, they did Coming to America too, and it pains me that, you know, I couldn't, I didn't get a role in that film. I, I can't say enough about Eddie, his talent as a comedic actor, and what his body of work has done for comedians, period. Yep. Even with, um, even with uh, you know, Boomerang, um, you know, watching that as an adult, like when I was going to, um, I took a film class a few years back, and, you know, we were just talking about images and everything, and I had recently, you know, revisited Boomerang, you know, as an adult, and I'm like, yo, man, Boomerang was so ahead of his time, came out in 92, and the stuff that he was doing in 92, you know, with that all predominantly black cast, you know, these brothers were making bank for the job he was working with, wearing suits, um, talking about relationships, and Boomerang is such a positive, you know, outside of him being a player, you know, but it's such a positive refreshing film. This was 92, you know, so this is before The Best Man and Think Like a Man. So Eddie was just so sure. ahead of time with, with Boomerang. So shout out to Eddie for Boomerang. The GOAT, bro. All right. The GOAT. My, be- my, my guest today has been Mr. Royale Watkins. I hope you all enjoyed hearing this brother's story. It's always good to chop it up with, you know, a brother from D.C. I've been a fan of his cat since, you know, I was a kid. I'm 39 now. So make sure you check out After I Do on YouTube. It's a great, you know, positive marriage show with the Watkins family. If you've never seen Dancing in September, um, if you can find it on any streaming platform, I highly urge you guys to check that out. Um, YouTube, his mixtape comedy videos, you know, it always cheers me up when I'm in a down mood. He's on Instagram, uh, on Facebook. You on Twitter too, bro? I'm on all social medias at Royale Watkins. And also, this is a brand-new project that I just executive produced and co-created uh, and directed. Uh, it's called All the Way Black. It's on BT Plus. 
It's a look at black culture through the uh, through seven, the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, through the lens of black culture. Uh, a lot of people are, are, are starting to talk about that show as well. So it's on BET Plus. It's called All The Way Black, so that should be enjoyable as well. Cool. Once again, folks, this has been Reviews and Done. My guest has been Royal Watkins. And to quote my man Maurice White, no matter what's going on in life, Keep your head to the sky. Until the next time. Hey, yo, check it out. This is the Wild Cowboy with a lot of style, boy. One of one. Untraceable. Punk jump up to get beat down. Slow down. And, yo, I want y'all to check out this podcast, yo. Y'all been listening to the reviews and done with your host, Derek Dunn. Be sure to check out reviewsanddone.net. Understand that reviews and done as D U N N dot net. Word up, it's a good combination. Dot X and done. What's messing with that, peoples? <laughs>